Well, as I mentioned already this morning, we come to uh, one of the more difficult and more controversial passages in Scripture, Hebrews 6. We're going to look at verses 4 to 8, which come together as a nice little unit. Remember, these are part of a larger unit that runs from uh, the end of chapter 5 through the end of chapter 6. Here in the midst of this long kind of parenthesis in the letter, uh, the author is warning against something very dangerous. And that danger is the danger of apostasy. So let me read this for us, uh, and then we will put ourselves before the Word and see what it teaches us. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 to 8, God's very own living Word. For it is impossible... In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, and holding Him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it, and produces a crop useful for those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless, and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. So ends again the reading of God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word. Let us, as we come before it, turn to the Lord once again in prayer. Excuse me. Our Lord and our Father, again we ask your blessing now as we come before your word that you would teach us from it, that you would fulfill your own promise that as it goes out this morning it will not return to you void or empty, but instead accomplish all that you purpose for it, and that it would be successful in everything for which you send it out this morning. For us, we pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit here this morning so that our eyes might be opened and our ears opened to see and hear everything that you would have us learn this morning. Plant your word deep within us, so that it might be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, and that we might be able to walk according to what it teaches us. Father, we have a difficult word this morning, so we ask for an especial work of your spirit and grace this morning to help us understand it and apply it in our lives. All this, as always, we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. A few days ago, I think it was within the last week or so, I saw one of those old PBS documentaries. Some of you are familiar with Huell Hauser, California's Gold, and his folksy way of traveling around the state, and he can find anything interesting. (laughs) The man can interview a lady who has all sorts of weird oddments out in her front yard and spend a half hour talking to her, and it's the most fascinating half hour of TV you've ever watched in your life. Mundane subjects, grand subjects, he does them all. Well, the one I saw is one I had seen before, an hour-long presentation about the Hearst Ranch up on the coast of California. Not Hearst Castle, which has been given to the state and is now a state park, but the ranch, a ranch that um, was bought by an older member of the family back in the 1800s, a man named George Hearst, 80,000 acres. It's 125 square miles of land. 
And it's still a working ranch. It's still owned by the Hearst family, but they've made an agreement with the state of California that they're going to preserve it as a bit of historical California, the, the ranching era, if you will, of California. Uh, there's a great grandson of uh, William Randolph Hearst who runs the ranch. He took Hugh Hauser on the tour explaining the ranch, the buildings, the cattle, all the things they do, the history, uh, all sorts of fascinating things. And one of the, the stops they made on this tour was on a, a hill kind of overlooking the ocean off in the distance and You've got these rolling hills uh, in between of, of grassland and little trees interspersed here and there. And the great-grandson explained that th this whole area that, he's, that you're looking down upon used to be planted with citrus trees. This was a ranch. They were trying to not just raise beef cattle, but also produce and various things. And so they decided they would try to raise citrus trees. Part of the attempt to make the ranch productive and, and useful. Unfortunately, the citrus trees didn't grow. They didn't produce any healthy fruit. It's the wrong temperature on the coast. It's the wrong climate. It's the wrong kind of soil. It's the wrong kind of everything <laughs> to grow citrus trees there on the central coast of California. And what's kind of struck me is here is literally one of the wealthiest families in the world. They've got access to all the resources, all the science, all the expertise, anybody, anything they needed or wanted, but they could not get those citrus trees to be healthy and fruitful. And what they did is rather than leave a bunch of dead trees dotting the landscape, they removed them all and restored the landscape to its original natural state, the rolling hills and the oak trees dotted among them. It looks beautiful, and you'd never know, looking at it, that it used to be covered with citrus groves. Amazing what the Hearst family is able to do. Amazing what they tried to do and couldn't do. Something similar and yet different is going on in our text. In particular, if you look at the illustration the author uses in verses 7 and 8 about two kinds of land, both receive the same nourishing rain, but one produces a useful crop and receives a blessing from God. The other bears thorns and thistles, even though it's been cultivated to do otherwise. It bears thorns and thistles and is worthless. Its destiny is to be burned. These two verses and the different kinds of land in them, one productive and the other not, one receiving a blessing, the other cursed and destroyed, are meant, I believe, by the author to be an illustration to help us understand the hard part that's going on in verses 4 to 6. I think if you want to understand verses 4 to 6, you have to understand them through the lens of that illustration in verses 7 to 8. And that's not original to me. I got this from one of my old teachers who wrote a commentary in Hebrews, Howell Jones. Think about these two pieces of land. Again, they receive the same nourishment. They are cultivated the same way. One grows a good crop and one does not. 
And what this illustration is saying about the previous verses is that the person who is in danger of falling away, verse 6, is the one who has received the same spiritual nourishment as the true believer, the one that produces a good crop, good fruit in their lives. But that person, instead of producing good fruit, a good crop, instead produces bad fruit, thorns, and thistles. Keeping this in mind will help us navigate this dire warning that the author is giving us, that despite receiving such incredible nourishment, there are some who fall away, some who will apostatize. That's the subject here, apostasy, and it's a terribly, terribly difficult one to consider and to talk about. A very real danger of rejecting God, turning against Him and all that He offers, reviling Him and His gifts, including Jesus Christ, despite being offered good spiritual food. And then that apostasy earns the same judgment as that field that produces thorns and thistles instead of a good crop be destroyed, to be burned. That, that's serious stuff. This is a hard passage. I want to look at these verses, approach them by examining some, some key ideas that I think flow out of them. Four things I want to talk about this morning. The first, and this is something we have to deal with, apostasy is real. Apostasy is real. The second Apostasy is terrible. It is horrible. It's awful. Third, because apostasy is real and terrible, it is therefore dangerous. And then the fourth thing, because of the first three, avoid it. (laughs) Run away from it. And in the context of what the author is saying in chapter 6, stop drinking spiritual milk. It's time to eat solid spiritual food. It's time to build on that basic foundation of the faith that you have and go on to maturity in that faith. So those four ideas. Apostasy is real. It's terrible. It's dangerous. But there is a a way to avoid it. So apostasy, it's real. Now apostasy is a word we don't use very often. And it's the idea that someone can be part of the church, part of the fellowship of the church, even show what appears to be evidence of repentance and faith, such that they receive and take part in the sacraments. They hear the word, they seem to understand the word, maybe they're even able to communicate it effectively to others in some way, shape, or form. They have all the appearance, in other words, of being uh, a believing Christian, and yet at some point in their life, They turn away from that faith so severely, so strongly, falling away is the way the text puts it in verse 6. They turn away from God so severely that they end up rejecting the faith and rejecting God himself. Hard to imagine. And yet it's real. And yet because it is so terrible, as we will see, some try to soften the reality of it by making this passage hypothetical. If 
someone were to fall away. Some translations put it. If someone were to fall away, this is what would happen. As if the author is, is trying to scare us with some hypothetical bogey monster to make us, you know, pursue maturity in the faith. But if, the word if, is nowhere in the text, in the Greek. This is not hypothetical in any way, shape, or form. This is a when they fall away. Some are going to fall away. text is saying something like this. It is impossible to restore those who have received good rain when they have produced a bad crop. Such a field is useless, fit only to be burned. And if you've been in the church a while, you've seen this in all likelihood, experienced the reality of it. We see children of of wonderful, wonderful Christian parents, baptized in the church, raised in the church, taught in the church, examined by the elders, approved to, to receive and partake of the Lord's Supper, who when they get older, leave the faith, but not just leave the faith, but leave the faith in such a way that they utterly, totally, completely reject God. They turn on God. They turn on Jesus. And they go out and live lives that are completely contrary to Christian faith and life. Not just children, but there's many examples of people that we know, that we see, that we have fellowship with, who for a time seem like they're believers like us but then turned violently away from the faith to lives of of apostate belief and behavior. They're like that field that produces thorns and thistles, and like that field that produces thorns and thistles, these lives that we see cause us, who remain, incredible sorrow and pain. Thistles and thorns are not pleasant to go grab and dig out of the ground. They're not pleasant to walk through. To walk with someone, to know someone, to have (coughs) fellowship with someone who apostatizes in this radical manner, it's, it's, it's painful. It hurts. We mourn over these people and our hearts break, and they should. And this points us to how terrible apostasy is. To see something like this happen to someone that you love about, that you love and that you care about, is, is just incredibly, incredibly heartbreaking. This is the beginning of understanding how terrible apostasy is. It breaks the way things are supposed to work. When you cultivate a field, when you give it good rain, it's supposed to produce a good crop. When it doesn't, that's unnatural. It's wrong. And when apostasy happens with real people, not just fields in an illustration, it breaks friendships. It breaks families. It can even break marriages. It's unnatural. Something not right about apostasy, about a field watered with good rain, producing thorns and thistles instead of a good crop. It's not right. And that's why the field has to be burned. It's become useless. But more than being useless, it's absolutely contrary to what's right and good. Burning is what it deserves. It's doing the wrong thing. 
The only thing left for that field is to be destroyed. Something similar with an apostate person. There's something not right. There's something wrong when this happens, and we feel it, and we sense it, and we, we can see it. Because they also, according to the text, have received good things. In verses 4 and 5, they've been enlightened. They've come to some understanding of the faith. They've tasted the heavenly gifts. They've shared in the Holy Spirit. They've tasted the goodness of God's word. They've seen the power of the age to come. Now, there's a lot of debate in the commentaries about what do these phrases actually describe. Are they the sacraments? Is it true faith? Is it something else? What is it? What does it mean to share in the Holy Spirit? And I think the best, most straightforward answer is to see these as as just a description of what life in the church is like. To fellowship, to worship, to serve in the church with fellow believers. It's not someone who is a true believer. I think we can talk more about that later. It's not someone who is a true believer. But it is someone who has all the appearance of a believer. Who's been part of the church, experienced it, seen the blessings given to the church by God, knows that they are blessings, knows that they are true, knows that they are real. To some extent, this person has agreed with much of what the church teaches and practices. But here we can be reminded of what we're told elsewhere. Even the demons believe, and they tremble. See, someone can understand that God punishes sin with death. Someone can understand that the only way to escape that punishment is repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. That part of this process is to be baptized, to partake of the Lord's Supper, to serve in the church, to worship, to do these things. And yet a person can do all of those things without true faith. A person can go through all the outward actions, all that rain pouring down on that field, without it being a good field producing a good crop. A person can do that without true repentance and faith. So one of the questions we can ask ourselves, how do we know? How do we know the true sheep from the false sheep, the goats? Well, sometimes we don't. In fact, I think oftentimes we don't. It's for God in the final judgment to separate the sheep from the goats. We leave that judgment to him and that final judgment eternal, terrible judgment to him. That's not usually for us to do. If anything, it's for the officers of the church, and that, I think, rarely. But sometimes we really do see this happen. Sometimes we really do see apostasy. What is apostasy? It's not just sinning. We all sin. We all fall short of the glory of God. We all struggle with our sin. We all do things that we know that we shouldn't do. We all don't do the things we know that we should do. That expression of Paul in Romans 7, we know that. We live it. We experience it. We struggle with it. Apostasy is not just sin. Apostasy is not even one major big sin. Murder. Whatever it might be. Pick your big sin. Great evil sins can and are forgiven. David the murderer, David the adulterer, David the conspirator, David the liar. 
is the David who wrote Psalm 32 that we heard from earlier. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Apostasy is something else. It's a complete and utter rejection of God, particularly, especially, as he is offered in Jesus Christ. Calvin describes it as kind of a, a whole-souled rejection of God. Every part of a person, thought, desires, everything, turns against God and turns against God completely. That's apostasy. It's real, it's terrible, and that turning against God so utterly and so completely is what makes apostasy so dangerous. Because it's not just unbelief. It's not even just belief in a different God or, or a different religion. It's not agnosticism or atheism per se, although often apostates adopt one of those things. Apostasy is a rejection of God and of the Christian faith by someone who ought to know better. Because that person has received everything needed for true faith and practice. They have received that abundant rain. They have been cultivated to produce a good crop. And they produce thorns and thistles instead. Apostasy is intentional. Remember what we read earlier, the Old Testament reading from Numbers 15. There's a difference between intentional and unintentional sins. Apostasy is intentional. And what do the intentional sins deserve in the Old Covenant law? Death, being cast out of the congregation. Apostates mean what they do, and they do it on purpose. That's what makes it so dangerous, because to reject God so brazenly, so boldly, is to incur more than anybody else the just, righteous judgment and wrath of God and the punishment that comes with it. The field is burned when it produces thorns and thistles. So is the apostate and the eternal fires of hell. And even worse, and this is what part of what makes it so tragic, such a person cannot be restored. It's impossible. We can't get around what this verse says, verse 4. It is impossible in the case of these kinds of apostate people, to restore them to faith. Why? Well, the author tells us, because to do so would be to crucify Christ all over again. In other words, they've already come and publicly made a show of being a Christian, professed faith in Jesus' crucifixion, that it paid for their sins, and that they believe and trust in this work of God on their behalf. To try again after rejecting this so boldly is the author saying, just, you're just crucifying Christ all over again and you're doing it for yourself selfishly and bringing Christ himself to shame. That's abominable. That's terrible. It's dangerous. Jesus Christ was crucified once. Once. And crucifying Jesus over and over again is presumptuous and devalues that once-for-all work that he has accomplished. True apostasy invites God's once-for-all judgment. 
And that judgment is destruction. Apostasy is real. It's terrible. It's awful. It's horrible. And it is dangerous. So it has to be avoided. It must be fought against. And we must protect each other from it. The verses here are a warning about the danger of apostasy, but we can't ignore the context, both what comes before these verses and what comes after. What comes before is what we talked about last week. The the admonishment and encouragement to stop being satisfied with spiritual milk and to move on to solid spiritual food. In doing so, we build on the foundation already established of repentance and faith, washings and laying on of hands of resurrection and eternal judgment. We build on that foundation, a solid, healthy house of faith leading to good works, to good fruit, to evidence that we are a crop, a field that has produced a useful crop. What comes after this passage is encouragement, assurance that the readers and us, by extension, are not apostates, but of those who will receive better things belonging to salvation. We are those who have sure hope in the promises of God and trust in Him to fulfill those promises for us and for our benefit. The key promise, of course, is Jesus Christ Himself, who as high priest, like Melchizedek, secured our eternal salvation. And it is an eternal salvation. Apostasy is real. But thankfully, I think it is also rare. And a couple thoughts to share along those lines. First, there are some people who appear to fall away but are still among those who are saved, still among the elect. There is another kind of field, if I can add to the illustration in verses 7 and 8. A field that for a time maybe does not receive rain, is not nourished. The crop there is ready to grow, but can't because it isn't receiving rain. I think this is a picture of the believer who strays from the faith for a period of time, stops attending church, stops reading the word, stops praying, removes himself or herself from the fellowship of other believers. And that might be a field in that person's case that's a little bit parched, a little bit dry, not receiving much, if any, rain at all, certainly not enough for health and for growth. Kind of like the believer that the writer talks about earlier in chapter 6, the one who drinks only milk instead of good, solid, spiritual food. We know these kinds of people too, among our friends and among our family. What can we do? Pray for them. Encourage them. Admonish them. If necessary, bring them under church discipline. The purpose of church discipline is to reconcile people with each other and with God. And how can they do that if they're out in the barren field? Bring them into a place where they're being watered and nurtured and cultivated. They need that. And the author's encouragement is vital. You're either growing or you're regressing. That believer out there in that dry, parched field is in danger of apostasy. And that's what the author is warning about. If something isn't done to reverse what's going on, something even more terrible could happen. Pray for their restoration. Pray for their growth. But secondly, remember this. We know from the broader context of Scripture and even from the rest of Hebrews, as I read a little bit from this morning in chapter 10, nothing can snatch us from the Father's hand. 
says Jesus in John 10. Hebrews 10.39, We are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but we are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. God preserves and protects his people. If he gave us the gift of faith, he does not take it away. He keeps his promises. He preserves and protects us. Enables us to persevere in the faith. Even for a time we may fail to produce a good crop, but he brings us back to himself always, faithfully. (coughs) We struggle, we sin, we err. We stray like those wayward sheep from God and from his good shepherd, Jesus Christ. And we may even stray for a long, long, long time. The Reformed Confessions talk about this, especially uh, the Canons of Dort. A believer may stray for a long period of time and appear lost. But if that person is one of God's sheep, God will rescue, will rescue that sheep. And those of us who see these wayward sheep can take comfort in that. If it's a friend, a family member, a child, even a spouse in some cases, pray that they might hear the voice of the shepherd calling and respond and return. If there's somebody listening who is one of those wayward sheep, Now's the time to hear his voice. Now's the time to hear the warning. Now's the time to move away from milk to solid food, to progress in your faith instead of regress, so that you can avoid the terrible danger of apostasy and God's wrath. Or if you know one of those wayward sheep, pray for them earnestly, diligently, but also speak to them, encourage them, to renew their faith, admonish them for being away from the faith. We saw that in Hebrews 10 too. There are some who absent themselves from the the fellowship for a period of time. Trust in God's promises that he does preserve and protect his own. Ask God to work in their lives, whether through you or through someone else, to bring them back to himself. Apostasy is real. It is terrible, horrible, awful. And it is dangerous. Avoid it. And avoid the severe punishment of God that comes with it. Instead, cling to Christ with the arms of faith. Feast upon all the blessings that are yours in Him. Eat that solid spiritual food that He offers. Grow up to maturity. And you will receive not a curse, from God, but blessings in abundance and for all of eternity. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, may we not be among those who shrink back, but rather those who cling to our faith when we stray, correct our path, put us back on the right path, when we sin, correct us and teach us and discipline us so that we return to obedience. For others around us (coughs) who we see straying and erring, we ask that you would work mightily in their lives to draw them back to yourselves, our friends, our family, our loved ones, 
Use us, if you would. Use others, if you would. Work mightily in them to bring them back to yourself. And again, preserve and protect us that we do not wander, that we do not stray, that we do not regress. But feed us the solid, wonderful, nourishing food that is ours in and through Christ our Savior. All of this we ask in His name. Amen.